Question 93, Part 1 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, On Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Taylor. Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, On Man, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 93. The End or Term of the Production of Man in Nine Articles, Part 1. We now treat the end of the term of man's production, inasmuch as he is said to be made to the image and likeness of God. There are under this head nine points of inquiry. 1. Whether the image of God is in man. 2. Whether the image of God is in irrational creatures. 3. Whether the image of God is in the angels more than in man. 4. Whether the image of God is in every man. 5. Whether the image of God is in man by comparison with the essence, or with all the divine persons, or with one of them. 6. Whether the image of God is in man as to his mind only. 7. Whether the image of God is in man's power or in his habits and acts. 8. Whether the image of God is in man by comparison with every object. 9. Of the difference between image and likeness. First Article. Section 1. Question 93. Article 1. Whether the image of God is in man. Objection 1. It would seem that the image of God is not in man. For it is written, Isaiah 40.18, To whom have you likened God? Or what image will you make for him? Objection 2. Further, to be the image of God is the property of the first begotten, of whom the Apostle says, Colossians 1.15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Therefore the image of God is not to be found in man. Objection 3. Further, Hilary says, on the councils, on the first canon of the Council of Ansira, that an image is of the same species as that which it represents. And he also says that an image is the undivided and united likeness of one thing adequately representing another. But there is no species common to both God and man, nor can there be a comparison of equality between God and man. Therefore there can be no image of God in man. On the contrary, it is written, Genesis 1.26, Let us make man to our own image and likeness. I answer that, as Augustine says, on 83 diverse questions, question 74, Where an image exists, there forthwith is likeness. But where there is likeness, there is not necessarily an image. Hence it is clear that likeness is essential to an image, and that an image adds something to likeness namely, that it is copied from something else. For an image is so called because it is produced as an imitation of something else. Wherefore, for instance, an egg, however much like and equal to another egg, is not called an image of the other egg because it is not copied from it. But equality does not belong to the essence of an image. For as Augustine says, on 83 diverse questions, question 74, where there is an image, there is not necessarily equality, as we see in a person's image reflected in a glass. Yet this is of the essence of a perfect image, for in a perfect image nothing is wanting that is to be found in that of which it is a copy. 
Now it is manifest that in man there is some likeness to God, copied from God as from an exemplar. Yet this likeness is not one of equality, for such an exemplar infinitely excels its copy. Therefore there is in man a likeness to God, not indeed a perfect likeness, but imperfect. And scripture implies the same when it says that man was made to God's likeness, for the preposition to signifies a certain approach, as of something at a distance. Reply to Objection 1. The prophet speaks of bodily images made by man. Therefore, he says pointedly, What image will you make for him? But God made a spiritual image to himself in man. Reply to Objection 2. The firstborn of creatures is the perfect image of God, reflecting perfectly that of which he is the image, and so he is said to be the image, and never to the image. But man is said to be both image by reason of the likeness, and to the image by reason of the imperfect likeness. And since the perfect likeness to God cannot be except in an identical nature, the image of God exists in his firstborn son, as the image of the king is in his son, who is of the same nature as himself, whereas it exists in man as in an alien nature, as the image of the king is in a silver coin, as Augustine explains in On the Ten Strings, Sermon 9, otherwise 96, on the liturgical seasons. Reply to Objection 3. As unity means absence of division, a species is said to be the same as far as it is one. Now a thing is said to be one not only numerically, specifically, or generically, but also according to a certain analogy or proportion. In this sense, a creature is one with God, or like to him. But when Hilary says, of a thing which adequately represents another, this is to be understood of a perfect image. Second Article, Section 1, Question 93, Article 2. Whether the image of God is to be found in irrational creatures. Objection 1. It would seem that the image of God is to be found in irrational creatures. For Dionysius says, Divine Names 2, Effects are contingent images of their causes. But God is the cause not only of rational, but also of irrational creatures. Therefore the image of God is to be found in irrational creatures. Objection 2. Further, the more distinct a likeness is, the nearer it approaches to the nature of an image. But Dionysius says, Divine Names 4, that the solar ray has a very great similitude to the divine goodness. Therefore, it is made to the image of God. Objection 3. Further, the more perfect anything is in goodness, the more it is like God. But the whole universe is more perfect in goodness than man. For though each individual thing is good, all things together are called very good. Genesis 1.31 Therefore, the whole universe is to the image of God, and not only man. Objection 4. Further, Boethius, the Consolation of Philosophy, 3, says of God, holding the world in his mind and forming it into his image. Therefore, the whole world is to the image of God, and not only the rational creature. On the contrary, Augustine says, the literal meaning of Genesis, 6.12. 12. 
Man's excellence consists in the fact that God made him to his own image by giving him an intellectual soul, which raises him above the beasts of the field. Therefore, things without intellect are not made to God's image. I answer that not every likeness, not even what is copied from something else, is sufficient to make an image. For if the likeness be only generic, or existing by virtue of some common accident, this does not suffice for one thing to be the image of another. For instance, a worm, though from man it may originate, cannot be called man's image, merely because of the generic likeness. Nor, if anything is made white like something else, can we say that it is the image of that thing, for whiteness is an accident belonging to many species. But the nature of an image requires likeness in species. Thus the image of the king exists in his son, or at least in some specific accident, and chiefly in the shape. Thus we speak of a man's image in copper. Whence Hilary says pointedly that an image is of the same species. Now it is manifest that specific likeness follows the ultimate difference. But some things are like to God first, and most commonly because they exist, secondly, because they live, and thirdly, because they know or understand. And these last, as Augustine says, on 83 diverse questions, question 51, approach so near to God in likeness, that among all creatures nothing comes nearer to him. It is clear, therefore, that intellectual creatures alone, properly speaking, are made to God's image. Reply to Objection 1. Everything imperfect is a participation of what is perfect. Therefore, even what falls short of the nature of an image, so far as it possesses any sort of likeness to God, participates in some degree the nature of an image. So Dionysius says that effects are contingent images of their causes, that is, as much as they happen, contingit, to be so, but not absolutely. Reply to Objection 2. Dionysius compares the solar ray to divine goodness as regards its causality, not as regards its natural dignity, which is involved in the idea of an image. Reply to Objection 3. The universe is more perfect in goodness than the intellectual creature as regards extension and diffusion, but intensively and collectively the likeness to the divine goodness is found rather in the intellectual creature, which has a capacity for the highest good. Or else we may say that a part is not rightly divided against the whole, but only against another part. Wherefore, when we say that the intellectual nature alone is to the image of God, we do not mean that the universe in any part is not to God's image, but that the other parts are excluded. Reply to Objection 4. Boethius here uses the word image to express the likeness which the product of an art bears to the artistic species in the mind of the artist. Thus every creature is an image of the exemplar type thereof in the divine mind. We are not, however, using the word image in this sense, but as it implies a likeness in nature, that is, inasmuch all things, as being, are like to the first being, as living, like to the first life and as intelligent like to the supreme wisdom. Third Article, Section 1, Question 93, Article 3. Whether the angels are more to the image of God than man is. Objection 1. 
it would seem that the angels are not more to the image of God than man is. For Augustine says in a sermon on the image, 43, on the words of the apostles, 27, that God granted to no other creature besides man to be to his image. Therefore it is not true to say that the angels are more than man to the image of God. Objection 2. Further, according to Augustine, on 83 diverse questions, question 51, man is so much to God's image that God did not make any creature to be between him and man, and therefore nothing is more akin to him. But a creature is called God's image so far as it is akin to God. Therefore the angels are not more to the image of God than man. Objection 3. Further, a creature is said to be to God's image so far as it is of an intellectual nature. But the intellectual nature does not admit of intensity or remissness, for it is not an accidental thing, since it is a substance. Therefore the angels are not more to the image of God than man. On the contrary, Gregory says, homily 34 on the Gospels, the angel is called a seal of resemblance, Ezekiel 28.12, because in him the resemblance of the divine image is wrought with greater expression. I answer that we may speak of God's image in two ways. First, we may consider in it that in which the image chiefly consists, that is, the intellectual nature. Thus, the image of God is more perfect in angels than in man, because their intellectual nature is more perfect, as is clear from what has been said. Question 58, Article 3. Question 79, Article 8. Secondly, we may consider the image of God in man as regards its accidental qualities, so far as to observe in man a certain imitation of God, consisting in the fact that man proceeds from man as God from God, and also in the fact that the whole human soul is in the whole body, and again in every part as God is in regard to the whole world. In these and the like things, the image of God is more perfect in man than it is in the angels. But these do not of themselves belong to the nature of the divine image in man, unless we presuppose the first likeness, which is in the intellectual nature. Otherwise, even brute animals would be to God's image. Therefore, as in their intellectual nature, the angels are more to the image of God than man is. We must grant that, absolutely speaking, the angels are more to the image of God than man is, but that in some respects man is more like to God. Reply to Objection 1. Augustine excludes the inferior creatures bereft of reason from the image of God, but not the angels. Reply to Objection 2. As fire is said to be specifically the most subtle of bodies, while nevertheless one kind of fire is more subtle than another, so we say that nothing is more like to God than the human soul in its generic and intellectual nature, because, as Augustine had said previously, things which have knowledge are so near to him in likeness that of all creatures none are nearer. Wherefore this does not mean that the angels are not more to God's image. Reply to Objection 3. When we say that substance does not admit of more or less, we do not mean that one species of substance is not more perfect than another, 
but that one and the same individual does not participate in its specific nature at one time more than at another. Nor do we mean that a species of substance is shared among different individuals in a greater or lesser degree. Fourth Article, Section 1, Question 93, Article 4. Whether the image of God is found in every man. Objection 1. It would seem that the image of God is not found in every man. For the Apostle says that man is the image of God, but woman is the image, vulgate glory, of man. 1 Corinthians 11.7 Therefore, as woman is an individual of the human species, it is clear that every individual is not an image of God. Objection 2. Further, the Apostle says, Romans 8.29, whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be made conformable to the image of his Son. But all men are not predestined. Therefore, all men have not the conformity of image. Objection 3. Further, likeness belongs to the nature of the image, as above explained, Article 1. But by sin, man becomes unlike God. Therefore, he loses the image of God. On the contrary, it is written, Psalm 38, 7, Surely man passeth as an image. I answer that, since man is said to be the image of God by reason of his intellectual nature, he is the most perfectly like God according to that in which he can best imitate God in his intellectual nature. Now the intellectual nature imitates God chiefly in this, that God understands and loves himself. Wherefore we see that the image of God is in man in three ways. First, inasmuch as man possesses a natural aptitude for understanding and loving God, and this aptitude consists in the very nature of the mind, which is common to all men. Secondly, inasmuch as man actually and habitually knows and loves God, though imperfectly, and this image consists in the conformity of grace. Thirdly, inasmuch as man knows and loves God perfectly, and this image consists in the likeness of glory. Wherefore, on the words, The light of thy countenance, O Lord, is signed upon us, Psalm 4, 7, the gloss distinguishes a threefold image of creation, of recreation, and of likeness. The first is found in all men, the second only in the just, the third only in the blessed. Reply to Objection 1. The image of God, in its principal signification, namely the intellectual nature, is found both in man and in woman. Hence, after the words, To the image of God he created him, it is added, Male and female he created them. Genesis 1.27. Moreover, it is said them in the plural, as Augustine, the literal meaning of Genesis 3.22, remarks, lest it should be thought that both sexes were united in one individual. But in a secondary sense, the image of God is found in man and not in woman, for man is the beginning and end of woman, as God is the beginning and end of every creature. So when the apostle had said that man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man, he adds his reason for saying this, for man is not of woman, but woman of man and man was not created for woman, but woman for man. Reply to Objections 2 and 3. 
These reasons refer to the image consisting in the conformity of grace and glory. Fifth Article, Section 1, Question 93, Article 5. Whether the image of God is in man according to the trinity of persons. Objection 1. It would seem that the image of God does not exist in man as to the trinity of persons. For Augustine says, Fulgentius to Peter on the faith, 1. One in essence is the Godhead of the Holy Trinity, and one is the image to which man was made. And Hilary, on the Trinity, 5, says, Man is made to the image of that which is common in the Trinity. Therefore the image of God in man is of the divine essence, and not of the Trinity of persons. Objection 2. Further, it is said, on the dogmas of the Church, that the image of God in man is to be referred to eternity. Damascene also says, on the Orthodox faith 2, 12, that the image of God in man belongs to him as an intelligent being endowed with free will and self-movement. Gregory of Nyssa, on the making of man, 16, also asserts that when Scripture says that man was made to the image of God, it means that human nature was made a participator of all good, for the Godhead is the fullness of goodness. Now all these things belong more to the unity of the essence than to the distinction of the persons. Therefore the image of God in man regards not the trinity of persons, but the unity of the essence. Objection 3. Further, an image leads to the knowledge of that of which it is the image. Therefore, if there is in man the image of God as to the trinity of persons, since man can know himself by his natural reason, it follows that by his natural knowledge man could know the trinity of the divine persons, which is untrue, as was shown above. Question 32, Article 1. Objection 4. Further, the name of image is not applicable to any of the three persons, but only to the Son. For Augustine says, on the Trinity, 6, 2, that the Son alone is the image of the Father. Therefore, if in man there were an image of God as regards the person, this would not be an image of the Trinity, but only of the Son. On the contrary, Hilary says, on the Trinity, 4, the plurality of the divine persons is proved from the fact that man is said to have been made to the image of God. I answer that, as we have seen, question 40, article 2, the distinction of the divine persons is only according to origin, or rather relations of origin. Now the mode of origin is not the same in all things, but in each thing is adapted to the nature thereof, animated things being produced in one way, and inanimate in another, animals in one way, and plants in another. Wherefore it is manifest that the distinction of the divine persons is suitable to the divine nature, and therefore to be to the image of God by imitation of the divine nature does not exclude being to the same image by the representation of the divine persons, but rather one follows from the other. We must therefore say that in man there exists the image of God, both as regards the divine nature and as regards the trinity of persons. For also in God himself there is one nature in three persons. Thus it is clear how to solve the first two objections. Reply to Objection 3. 
This argument would avail if the image of God in man represented God in a perfect manner. But as Augustine says, on the Trinity, 15, 6, there is a great difference between the Trinity within ourselves and the divine Trinity. Therefore, as he there says, we see rather than believe the Trinity which is in ourselves, whereas we believe rather than see that God is Trinity. Reply to Objection 4. Some have said that in man there is an image of the Son only. Augustine rejects this opinion on the Trinity 12, 5, and 6. First, because as the Son is like to the Father by a likeness of essence, it would follow of necessity if man were made in likeness to the Son, that he is made to the likeness of the Father. Secondly, because if man were made only to the image of the Son, the Father would not have said, Let us make man to our own image and likeness, but to thy image. When, therefore, it is written, He made him to the image of God, the sense is not that the Father made man to the image of the Son only, who is God, as some explained it, but that the divine Trinity made man to its image, that is, of the whole Trinity. When it is said that God made man to his image, this can be understood in two ways. First, so that this preposition to points to the term of the making, and then the sense is, let us make man in such a way that our image may be in him. Secondly, this preposition to may point to the exemplar clause, as when we say, this book is made like to that one. Thus the image of God is the very essence of God, which is incorrectly called an image for as much as image is put for the exemplar. Or, as some say, the divine essence is called an image because thereby one person imitates another. End of question 93, part 1. Recording by Adam Taylor, CatholicComposer.com Question 93, Part 2 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, On Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Taylor. Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, On Man, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 93. The End or Term of the Production of Man in Nine Articles, Part 2. Sixth Article, Section 1, Question 93, Article 6. Whether the image of God is in man as regards the mind only. Objection 1. It would seem that the image of God is not only in man's mind. For the Apostle says, 1 Corinthians 11, 7, that the man is the image of God. But man is not only mind. Therefore, the image of God is to be observed not only in his mind. Objection 2. Further, it is written, Genesis 1, 27, God created man to his own image. To the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. But the distinction of male and female is in the body. Therefore, the image of God is also in the body, and not only in the mind. Objection 3. Further, 
An image seems to apply principally to the shape of a thing. But shape belongs to the body. Therefore, the image of God is to be seen in man's body also, and not in his mind. Objection 4. Further, according to Augustine, the literal meaning of Genesis, 12, 7, 24, there is a threefold vision in us, corporeal, spiritual or imaginary, and intellectual. Therefore, if in the intellectual vision that belongs to the mind there exists in us a trinity by reason of which we are made to the image of God, for the like reason there must be another trinity in the others. On the contrary, the Apostle says, Ephesians 4.23.24, Be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new man. Whence we are given to understand that our renewal, which consists in putting on the new man, belongs to the mind. Now, he says, Colossians 3.10, Putting on the new man, him who is renewed unto knowledge of God, according to the image of him that created him where the renewal which consists in putting on the new man is ascribed to the image of God. Therefore, to be to the image of God belongs to the mind only. I answer that, while in all creatures there is some kind of likeness to God, in the rational creature alone we find a likeness of image as we have explained above, Articles 1 and 2. Whereas in other creatures we find a likeness by way of a trace. Now the intellect or mind is that whereby the rational creature excels other creatures. Wherefore, this image of God is not found even in the rational creature except in the mind, while in the other parts, which the rational creature may happen to possess, we find the likeness of a trace, as in other creatures to which, in reference to such parts, the rational creature can be likened. We may easily understand the reason of this if we consider the way in which a trace and the way in which an image represents anything. An image represents something by likeness in species, as we have said, while a trace represents something by way of an effect, which represents the cause in such a way as not to attain to the likeness of species. For imprints which are left by the movements of animals are called traces, so also ashes are a trace of fire, and desolation of the land a trace of a hostile army. Therefore we may observe this difference between rational creatures and others, both as to the representation of the likeness of the divine nature in creatures, and as to the representation in them of the uncreated trinity. For as to the likeness of the divine nature, rational creatures seem to attain, after a fashion, to the representation of the species, inasmuch as they imitate God, not only in being and life, but also in intelligence, as above explained, Article 2. Whereas other creatures do not understand, although we observe in them a certain trace of the intellect that created them, if we consider their disposition. Likewise, as the uncreated trinity is distinguished by the procession of the word from the speaker, and of love from both of these, as we have seen, Question 28, Article 3. So we may say that in rational creatures, wherein we find a procession of the word in the intellect, and a procession of love in the will, there exists an image of the uncreated trinity, by a certain representation of the species. In other creatures, however, we do not find the principle of the word, and the word and love. 
but we do see in them a certain trace of the existence of these in the cause that produced them. For in the fact that a creature has a modified and finite nature proves that it proceeds from a principle, while its species points to the mental word of the maker, just as the shape of a house points to the idea of the architect, and order points to the maker's love, by reason of which he directs the effect to a good end, as also the use of the house points to the will of the architect. So we find in man a likeness to God by way of an image in his mind, but in the other parts of his being by way of a trace. Reply to Objection 1. Man is called to the image of God, not that he is essentially an image, but that the image of God is impressed on his mind, as a coin is an image of the king, as having the image of the king. Wherefore, there is no need to consider the image of God as existing in every part of man. Reply to Objection 2. As Augustine says, on the Trinity, 12, 5, some have thought that the image of God was not in man individually, but severally. They held that the man represents the person of the Father, those born of man denote the person of the Son, and that the woman is a third person in likeness to the Holy Ghost, since she so proceeded from man as not to be his son or daughter. All of this is manifestly absurd. First, because it would follow that the Holy Ghost is the principle of the Son, as the woman is the principle of the man's offspring. Secondly, because one man would be only the image of one person. Thirdly, because in that case Scripture should not have mentioned the image of God in man until after the birth of the offspring. Therefore, we must understand that when Scripture had said, To the image of God he created them, it added, Male and female he created them, not to imply that the image of God came through the distinction of sex, but that the image of God belongs to both sexes, since it is in the mind, wherein there is no sexual distinction. Wherefore the Apostle, Colossians 3.10, after saying, According to the image of him that created him, added, Where there is neither male nor female. These words are in reality from Galatians 3.28. In the Vulgate, neither Gentile nor Jew. Reply to Objection 3. Although the image of God in man is not to be found in his bodily shape, yet because the body of man alone among terrestrial animals is not inclined prone to the ground, but is adapted to look upward to heaven, for this reason we may rightly say that it is made to God's image and likeness, rather than the bodies of other animals, as Augustine remarks, on 83 diverse questions, question 51. But this is not to be understood as though the image of God were in man's body, but in the sense that the very shape of the human body represents the image of God in the soul by way of a trace. Reply to Objection 4. Both in the corporeal and in the imaginary vision we may find a trinity, as Augustine says, on the Trinity, 11.2. For in corporeal vision there is first the species of the exterior body, secondly the act of vision, which occurs by the impression on the sight of a certain likeness of the said species, thirdly the intention of the will applying the sight to see, and to rest on what is seen. Likewise, in the imaginary vision, we find first the species kept in the memory, secondly the vision itself, 
which is caused by the penetrative power of the soul, that is, the faculty of imagination, informed by the species, and thirdly, we find the intention of the will joining both together. But each of these trinities falls short of the divine image. For the species of the external body is extrinsic to the essence of the soul, while the species in the memory, though not extrinsic to the soul, is adventitious to it. And thus in both cases the species falls short of representing the co-naturality and co-eternity of the divine persons. The corporeal vision, too, does not proceed only from the species of the external body, but from this, and at the same time from the sense of the seer. In like manner, imaginary vision is not from the species only which is preserved in the memory, but also from the imagination. For these reasons, the procession of the Son from the Father alone is not suitably represented. Lastly, the intention of the will joining the two together does not proceed from them either in corporeal or spiritual vision. Wherefore, the procession of the Holy Ghost from the Father and the Son is not thus properly represented. Seventh Article Section 1, Question 93, Article 7 Whether the image of God is to be found in the acts of the soul? Objection 1 It would seem that the image of God is not found in the acts of the soul. For Augustine says, The city of God, 11.26, that man was made to God's image, inasmuch as we exist and know that we exist, and love this existence and knowledge. But to exist does not signify an act. Therefore the image of God is not to be found in the soul's acts. Objection 2. Further, Augustine, on the Trinity, 9.4, assigns God's image in the soul to these three things, mind, knowledge, and love. But mind does not signify an act, but rather the power or the essence of the intellectual soul. Therefore the image of God does not extend to the acts of the soul. Objection 3. Further, Augustine, on the Trinity, 10.11, assigns the image of the Trinity in the soul to memory, understanding, and will. But these three are natural powers of the soul, as the master of the sentences says. First sentence, D. 3. Therefore, the image of God is in the powers, and does not extend to the acts of the soul. Objection 4. Further, the image of the Trinity always remains in the soul, but an act does not always remain. Therefore, the image of God does not extend to the acts. On the contrary, Augustine, on the Trinity, 9, 2, and following, assigns the trinity in the lower part of the soul, in relation to the actual vision, whether sensible or imaginative. Therefore, also the trinity in the mind, by reason of which man is like to God's image, must be referred to actual vision. I answer that, as above explained, Article 2, a certain representation of the species belongs to the nature of an image. Hence, if the image of the divine trinity is to be found in the soul, we must look for it where the soul approaches the nearest to a representation of the species of the divine persons. Now the divine persons are distinct from each other by reason of the procession of the word from the speaker, and the procession of love connecting both. 
but in our soul word cannot exist without actual thought, as Augustine says on the Trinity, 14, 7. Therefore, first and chiefly, the image of the Trinity is to be found in the acts of the soul, that is, inasmuch as from the knowledge which we possess, by actual thought we form an internal word, and thence break forth into love. But since the principles of acts are the habits and powers, and everything exists virtually in its principle, therefore secondarily and consequently the image of the Trinity may be considered as existing in the powers, and still more in the habits, forasmuch as the acts virtually exist therein. Reply to Objection 1. Our being bears the image of God so far as it is proper to us, and excels that of the other animals, that is to say, in so far as we are endowed with a mind. Therefore this trinity is the same as that which Augustine mentions, on the trinity 9.4, and which consists in mind, knowledge, and love. Reply to Objection 2. Augustine observed this trinity first as existing in the mind, but because the mind, though it knows itself entirely in a certain degree, yet also in a way does not know itself, namely as being distinct from others, and thus also it searches itself, as Augustine subsequently proves, on the Trinity, 10, 3, and 4. Therefore, as though knowledge were not in equal proportion to mind, he takes three things in the soul which are proper to the mind, namely memory, understanding, and will, which everyone is conscious of possessing and assigns the image of the Trinity preeminently to these three, as though the first assignation were in part deficient. Reply to Objection 3. As Augustine proves, on the Trinity 14.7, we may be said to understand, will, and to love certain things, both when we actually consider them, and when we do not think of them. When they are not under our actual consideration, they are objects of our memory only, which, in his opinion, is nothing else than habitual retention of knowledge and love. Compare question 79, article 7, reply 1. But since, as he says, a word cannot be there without actual thought, for we think everything that we say, even if we speak with that interior word belonging to no nation's tongue, this image chiefly consists in these three things memory, understanding, and will. And by understanding I mean here that whereby we understand with actual thought. And by will, love, or dilection, I mean that which unites this child with its parent. From which it is clear that he places the image of the divine trinity more in actual understanding and will than in these as existing in the habitual retention of the memory although even thus the image of the Trinity exists in the soul in a certain degree, as he says in the same place. Thus it is clear that memory, understanding, and will are not three powers as stated in the sentences. Reply to Objection 4. Someone might answer by referring to Augustine's statement on the Trinity 14.6, that the mind ever remembers itself, ever understands itself, ever loves itself, which some take to mean that the soul ever actually understands and loves itself. But he excludes this interpretation by adding that 
it does not always think of itself as actually distinct from other things. Thus it is clear that the soul always understands and loves itself, not actually but habitually. Though we might say that by perceiving its own act it understands itself whenever it understands anything. But since it is not always actually understanding, as in the case of sleep, we must say that these acts, although not always actually existing, yet ever exist in their principles, the habits and powers. Wherefore, Augustine says, on the Trinity, 14.4, If the rational soul is made to the image of God in the sense that it can make use of reason and intellect to understand and consider God, then the image of God was in the soul from the beginning of its existence. Eighth Article, Section 1, Question 93, Article 8 whether the image of the divine trinity is in the soul only by comparison with God as its object. Objection 1. It would seem that the image of the divine trinity is in the soul not only by comparison with God as its object. For the image of the divine trinity is to be found in the soul, as shown above, Article 7, according as the word in us proceeds from the speaker, and love from both. But this is to be found in us as regards any object. Therefore, the image of the divine trinity is in our mind as regards any object. Objection 2. Further, Augustine says, on the Trinity, 12.4, that when we seek trinity in the soul, we seek it in the whole of the soul, without separating the process of reasoning in temporal matters from the consideration of things eternal. Therefore, the image of the Trinity is to be found in the soul, even as regards temporal objects. Objection 3. Further, it is by grace that we can know and love God. If, therefore, the image of the Trinity is found in the soul by reason of the memory, understanding, and will, or love of God, this image is not in man by nature, but by grace, and thus is not common to all. Objection 4. Further, the saints in heaven are most perfectly conformed to the image of God by the beatific vision. Wherefore it is written, 2 Corinthians 3.18, We are transformed into the same image from glory to glory. But temporal things are known by the beatific vision. Therefore, the image of God exists in us even according to temporal things. On the contrary, Augustine says, on the Trinity, 14.12, The image of God exists in the mind, not because it has a remembrance of itself, loves itself, and understands itself, but because it can also remember, understand, and love God by whom it was made. Much less, therefore, is the image of God in the soul, in respect of other objects. I answer that, as above explained, Articles 2 and 7, Image means a likeness which in some degree, however small, attains to a representation of the species. Wherefore, we need to seek in the image of the divine trinity, in the soul, some kind of representation of species of the divine persons, so far as this is possible to a creature. Now the divine persons, as above stated, Articles 6 and 7, are distinguished from each other according to the procession of the word from the speaker, and the procession of love from both. Moreover, the word of God is born of God by the knowledge of himself, 
and love proceeds from God according as he loves himself. But it is clear that diversity of objects diversifies the species of word and love. For in the human mind the species of a stone is specifically different from that of a horse, which also the love regarding each of them is specifically different. Hence we refer the divine image in man to the verbal concept born of the knowledge of God, and to the love derived therefrom. Thus the image of God is found in the soul according as the soul turns to God, or possesses a nature that enables it to turn to God. Now the mind may turn towards an object in two ways, directly and immediately, or indirectly and mediately. As, for instance, when anyone sees a man reflected in a looking-glass, he may be said to be turned towards that man. So Augustine says, on the Trinity, 14.8, that the mind remembers itself, understands itself, and loves itself. If we perceive this, we perceive a trinity, not indeed God, but nevertheless rightly called the image of God. But this is due to the fact, not that the mind reflects on itself absolutely, but that thereby it can furthermore turn to God, as appears from the authority quoted above, argument on the contrary. Reply to Objection 1. For the notion of an image it is not enough that something proceed from another, but it is also necessary to observe what proceeds and whence it proceeds, namely, that what is the word of God proceeds from knowledge of God. Reply to Objection 2. In all the soul we may see a kind of trinity, not, however, as though besides the action of temporal things and the contemplation of eternal things, any third thing should be required to make up the trinity, as he adds in the same passage. But in that part of the reason which is concerned with temporal things, although a trinity may be found, yet the image of God is not to be seen there, as he says further on. For as much as this knowledge of temporal things is adventitious to the soul, Moreover, even the habits whereby temporal things are known are not always present, but sometimes they are actually present, and sometimes present only in memory even after they begin to exist in the soul. Such is clearly the case with faith, which comes to us temporally for this present life, while in the future life faith will no longer exist, but only the remembrance of faith. Reply to Objection 3 the meritorious knowledge and love of God can be in us only by grace. Yet there is a certain natural knowledge and love as seen above. Question 12, Article 12. Question 56, Article 3. And Question 60, Article 5. This too is natural that the mind, in order to understand God, can make use of reason, in which sense we have already said that the image of God abides ever in the soul. Whether this image of God be so obsolete, as it were clouded, as almost to amount to nothing, as in those who have not the use of reason, or obscured and disfigured, as in sinners, or clear and beautiful, as in the just, as Augustine says, on the Trinity 14.6. Reply to Objection 4. By the vision of glory temporal things will be seen in God himself, and such a vision of things temporal will belong to the image of God. This is what Augustine means, 
on the Trinity 14.6, when he says that in that nature to which the mind will blissfully adhere, whatever it sees it will see as unchangeable, for in the uncreated word are the types of all creatures. Ninth Article, Section 1, Question 93, Article 9. Whether likeness is properly distinguished from image. Objection 1. It would seem that likeness is not properly distinguished from image, for genus is not properly distinguished from species. Now likeness is to image, as genus to species, because where there is image, forthwith there is likeness, but not conversely. As Augustine says, on 83 diverse questions, question 74. Therefore, likeness is not properly to be distinguished from image. Objection 2. Further, the nature of the image consists not only in the representation of the divine persons, but also in the representation of the divine essence, to which representation belong immortality and indivisibility. So it is not true to say that the likeness is in the essence because it is immortal and indivisible, whereas the image is in other things. Sentence 2, D, 16. Objection 3. Further, the image of God in man is threefold. The image of nature, of grace, and of glory, as above explained, Article 4. But innocence and righteousness belong to grace. Therefore, it is incorrectly said, sentence 2, d. 16, that the image is taken from the memory, the understanding and the will, while the likeness is from innocence and righteousness. Objection 4. Further, knowledge of truth belongs to the intellect, and love of virtue to the will, which two things are parts of the image. Therefore, it is incorrect to say, sentence 2, d. 16, that the image consists in the knowledge of truth, and the likeness in the love of virtue. On the contrary, Augustine says, on 83 diverse questions, question 51, some consider that these two were mentioned not without reason, namely image and likeness, since if they meant the same, one would have sufficed. I answer that likeness is a kind of unity, for oneness in quality causes likeness, as the philosopher says, Metaphysics 5, Didascale 4.15. Now, since one is a transcendental, it is both common to all and adapted to each single thing, just as the good and the true. Wherefore, as the good can be compared to each individual thing, both as its preamble and as subsequent to it, as signifying some perfection in it, so also in the same way there exists a kind of comparison between likeness and image. For the good is a preamble to man, inasmuch as man is an individual good. And again, the good is subsequent to man, inasmuch as we may say of a certain man that he is good, by reason of his perfect virtue. In like manner, likeness may be considered in the light of a preamble to image, inasmuch as it is something more general than image, as we have said above. Article 1. And again, it may be considered as subsequent to image, inasmuch as it signifies a certain perfection of image. 
for we say that an image is like or unlike what it represents, according as the representation is perfect or imperfect. Thus likeness may be distinguished from image in two ways. First, as its preamble, and existing in more things, and in this sense likeness regards things which are more common than the intellectual properties, wherein the image is properly to be seen. In this sense it is stated, on 83 diverse questions, question 51, that the spirit, namely the mind, without doubt was made to the image of God. But the other parts of man, belonging to the soul's inferior faculties, or even to the body, are in the opinion of some made to God's likeness. In this sense, he says, on the measure of the soul, too, that the likeness of God is found in the soul's incorruptibility, for corruptible and incorruptible are differences of universal beings. But likeness may be considered in another way as signifying the expression and perfection of the image. In this sense, Damascene says, on the Orthodox faith, 2.12, that the image implies an intelligent being endowed with free will and self-movement, whereas likeness implies a likeness of power, as far as this may be possible in man. In the same sense, likeness is said to belong to the love of virtue, for there is no virtue without love of virtue. Reply to Objection 1. Likeness is not distinct from image in the general notion of likeness, for thus it is included in image. But so far as any likeness falls short of image, or again, as it perfects the idea of image. Reply to Objection 2. The soul's essence belongs to the image, as representing the divine essence in those things which belong to the intellectual nature but not in those conditions subsequent to general notions of being, such as simplicity and indissolubility. Reply to Objection 3. Even certain virtues are natural to the soul, at least in their seeds, by reason of which we may say that a natural likeness exists in the soul. Nor is it unfitting to us the term image from one point of view and from another the term likeness. Reply to Objection 4. Love of the word, which is knowledge loved, belongs to the nature of image, but love of virtue belongs to likeness, as virtue itself belongs to likeness. End of Question 93, Part 2. Recording by Adam Taylor, CatholicComposer.com Question 94 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, On Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, On Man, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 94. Of the state and condition of the first man as regards his intellect. In four articles. We next consider the state or condition of the first man. First, as regards his soul, secondly, as regards his body. 
Concerning the first, there are two things to be considered. One, the condition of man as to his intellect. Two, the condition of man as to his will. Under the first head, there are four points of inquiry. One, whether the first man saw the essence of God. Two, whether he could see the separate substances, that is, the angels. Three, whether he possessed all knowledge. Four, whether he could err or be deceived. First Article, Part 1, Question 94, Article 1 whether the first man saw God through his essence. Objection 1. It would seem that the first man saw God through his essence. For man's happiness consists in the vision of the divine essence. But the first man, quote, while established in paradise, led a life of happiness in the enjoyment of all things, end quote, as Damascene says on the Orthodox faith. 2.11. And Augustine says, The City of God, 14.10, If man was gifted with the same tastes as now, how happy must he have been in paradise, that place of ineffable happiness? End quote. Therefore the first man in paradise saw God through his essence. Objection 2. Further, Augustine says, the City of God, 14, in the place cited, that, quote, the first man lacked nothing which his good will might obtain, end quote. But our good will can obtain nothing better than the vision of the divine essence. Therefore, man saw God through his essence. Objection 3. Further, the vision of God in his essence is whereby God is seen without a medium or enigma. But man, in the state of innocence, quote, saw God immediately, end quote, as the master of the sentences asserts. Book of Sentences 4, Distinction 1. He also saw without an enigma, for an enigma implies obscurity, as Augustine says on the Trinity, 15.9. Now obscurity resulted from sin. Therefore man in the primitive state saw God through his essence. On the contrary, the Apostle says, 1 Corinthians 15.46, That was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural. End quote. But to see God through his essence is most spiritual. Therefore the first man in the primitive state of his natural life did not see God through his essence. I answer that. The first man did not see God through his essence if we consider the ordinary state of that life, unless perhaps it be said that he saw God in a vision when, quote, God cast a deep sleep upon Adam, end quote. Genesis 2.21 The reason is, because since in the divine essence is beatitude itself, the intellect of a man who sees the divine essence has the same relation to God as a man has to beatitude. Now it is clear that man cannot willingly be turned away from beatitude, since naturally and necessarily he desires it, 
and shuns unhappiness. Wherefore no man who sees the essence of God can willingly turn away from God, which means to sin. Hence all who see God through his essence are so firmly established in the love of God that for eternity they can never sin. Therefore as Adam did sin, it is clear that he did not see God through his essence. Nevertheless, he knew God with a more perfect knowledge than we do now. Thus, in a sense, his knowledge was midway between our knowledge in the present state and the knowledge we shall have in heaven when we see God through his essence. To make this clear, we must consider that the vision of God through his essence is contradistinguished from the vision of God through his creatures. Now, the higher the creature is, and the more like it is to God, the more clearly is God seen in it. For instance, a man is seen more clearly through a mirror in which his image is the more clearly expressed. Thus God is seen in a much more perfect manner through his intelligible effects than through those which are only sensible or corporeal. But in his present state, man is impeded as regards the full and clear consideration of intelligible creatures, because he is distracted by and occupied with sensible things. Now it is written, Ecclesiastes 7.30, God made man right, end quote. And man was made right by God in this sense, that in him the lower powers were subjected to the higher, and the higher nature was made so as not to be impeded by the lower. Wherefore the first man was not impeded by exterior things from a clear and steady contemplation of the intelligible effects which he perceived by the radiation of the first truth, whether by a natural or by a gratuitous knowledge. Hence Augustine says, on the literal meaning of Genesis 11.33, that, quote, Perhaps God used to speak to the first man as he speaks to the angels by shedding on his mind a ray of the unchangeable truth, yet without bestowing on him the experience of which the angels are capable in the participation of the divine essence. Therefore, through these intelligible effects of God, man knew God then more clearly than we know him now. Reply Objection 1 Man was happy in paradise, but not with that perfect happiness to which he was destined, which consists in the vision of the divine essence. He was, however, endowed with, quote, a life of happiness in a certain measure, end quote, as Augustine says, on the literal meaning of Genesis 11.18, so far as he was gifted with natural integrity and perfection. Reply Objection 2 A good will is a well-ordered will, but the will of the first man would have been ill-ordered had he wished to have, while in the state of merit, what had been promised to him as a reward. Reply Objection 3 A medium of knowledge is twofold, one through which, and at the same time in which, something is seen, as, for example, a man is seen through a mirror, and is seen with the mirror. Another kind of medium is that whereby we attain to the knowledge of something unknown, 
such as the medium in a demonstration. God was seen without this second kind of medium, but not without the first kind. For there was no need for the first man to attain to the knowledge of God by demonstration drawn from an effect, such as we need, since he knew God simultaneously in his effects, especially in the intelligible effects, according to his capacity. Again, we must remark that the obscurity which is implied in the word enigma may be of two kinds. First, so far as every creature is something obscure when compared with the immensity of the divine light, and thus Adam saw God in an enigma because he saw him in a created effect. Secondly, we may take obscurity as an effect of sin so far as man is impeded in the consideration of intelligible things by being preoccupied with sensible things, in which sense Adam did not see God in an enigma. Second Article Part 1, Question 94, Article 2 Whether Adam in the state of innocence saw the angels through their essence? Objection 1 it would seem that Adam, in the state of innocence, saw the angels through their essence. For Gregory says, Dialogues 4.1, In paradise man was accustomed to enjoy the words of God, and by purity of heart and loftiness of vision to have the company of the good angels. Quote. Objection 2. Further, the soul in the present state is impeded from the knowledge of separate substances by union with a corruptible body which, quote, is a load upon the soul, end quote, as is written, Wisdom 9.15. Wherefore, the separate soul can see separate substances, as above explained, question 89, article 2. But the body of the first man was not a load upon his soul, for the latter was not corruptible. Therefore, he was able to see separate substances. Objection 3. Further, one separate substance knows another separate substance by knowing itself. Book of Causes 13. But the soul of the first man knew itself. Therefore, it knew separate substances. On the contrary, the soul of Adam was of the same nature as ours but our souls cannot now understand separate substances. Therefore neither could Adam's soul. I answer that. The state of the human soul may be distinguished in two ways. First, from a diversity of mode in its natural existence, and in this point the state of the separate soul is distinguished from the state of the soul joined to the body. Secondly, the state of the soul is distinguished in relation to integrity and corruption, the state of natural existence remaining the same, and thus the state of innocence is distinct from the state of man after sin. For man's soul in the state of innocence was adapted to perfect and govern the body. Wherefore, the first man is said to have been made into a, quote, living soul, end quote that is, a soul giving life to the body, namely animal life. But he was endowed with integrity as to this life, in that the body was entirely subject to the soul, hindering it in no way, as we have said above, 
Article 1. Now it is clear from what has been already said, Question 84, Article 7, Question 85, Article 1, Question 89, Article 1, that since the soul is adapted to perfect and govern the body as regards animal life, it is fitting that it should have that mode of understanding which is by turning to phantasms. Wherefore this mode of understanding was becoming to the soul of the first man also. Now in virtue of this mode of understanding, there are three degrees of movement in the soul, as Dionysius says, Divine Names 4. The first is by the soul, quote, passing from exterior things to concentrate its powers on itself, end quote. The second is by the soul ascending, quote, so as to be associated with the united superior powers, end quote, namely the angels. The third is when the soul is, quote, led on, end quote, yet further, quote, to the supreme good, end quote, that is, to God. In virtue of the first movement of the soul from exterior things to itself, the soul's knowledge is perfected. This is because the intellectual operation of the soul has a natural order to external things, as we have said above. Question 87, Article 3. And so by the knowledge thereof, our intellectual operation can be known perfectly as an act through its object and through the intellectual operation itself, the human intellect can be known perfectly as a power through its proper act. But in the second movement we do not find perfect knowledge, because since the angel does not understand by turning to phantasms, but by a far more excellent process, as we have said above, question 55, article 2, the above-mentioned mode of knowledge by which the soul knows itself is not sufficient to lead it to the knowledge of an angel. Much less does the third movement lead to perfect knowledge. For even the angels themselves, by the fact that they know themselves, are not able to arrive at the knowledge of the divine substance by reason of its surpassing excellence. Therefore the soul of the first man could not see the angels in their essence. Nevertheless, he had a more excellent mode of knowledge regarding the angels than we possess, because his knowledge of intelligible things within him was more certain and fixed than our knowledge. And it was on account of this excellence of knowledge that Gregory says that, quote, he enjoyed the company of the angelic spirits, end quote. This makes clear the reply to the first objection. Reply Objection 2. That the soul of the first man fell short of the knowledge regarding separate substances was not owing to the fact that the body was a load upon it, but to the fact that its connatural object fell short of the excellence of separate substances. We, in our present state, fall short on account of both these reasons. Reply Objection 3. The soul of the first man was not able to arrive at knowledge of separate substances by means of its self-knowledge, as we have shown above, for even each separate substance knows others in its own measure. Third Article Part 1, Question 94, Article 3 Whether the first man knew all things? 
Objection 1. It would seem that the first man did not know all things. For if he had such knowledge, it would be either by acquired species, or by connatural species, or by infused species. Not, however, by acquired species, for this kind of knowledge is acquired by experience, as stated in Metaphysics 1, 1. And the first man had not then gained experience of all things. Nor through connatural species, because he was of the same nature as we are, and our soul, as Aristotle says, on the soul 3, 4, is, quote, like a clean tablet on which nothing is written, end quote. And if his knowledge came by infused species, it would have been of a different kind from ours, which we acquire from things themselves. Objection 2. Further, individuals of the same species have the same way of arriving at perfection. Now other men have not, from the beginning, knowledge of all things, but they acquire it in the course of time, according to their capacity. Therefore neither did Adam know all things when he was first created. Objection 3. Further, the present state of life is given to man in order that his soul may advance in knowledge and merit. Indeed, the soul seems to be united to the body for that purpose. Now man would have advanced in merit in that state of life, therefore also in knowledge. Therefore he was not endowed with knowledge of all things. On the contrary, man named the animals, Genesis 2.20. But names should be adapted to the nature of things. Therefore Adam knew the animals' natures, and in like manner he was possessed of the knowledge of all other things. I answer that, in the natural order, perfection comes before imperfection, as act precedes potentiality, for whatever is in potentiality is made actual only by something actual. And since God created things not only for their own existence, but also that they might be the principles of other things, so creatures were produced in their perfect state to be the principles as regards others. Now man can be the principle of another man, not only by generation of the body, but also by instruction and government. Hence, as the first man was produced in his perfect state, as regards his body, for the work of generation, so also was his soul established in a perfect state to instruct and govern others. Now, no one can instruct others unless he has knowledge. And so the first man was established by God in such a manner as to have knowledge of all those things for which man has a natural aptitude. And such are whatever are virtually contained in the first self-evident principles, that is, whatever truths man is naturally able to know. Moreover, in order to direct his own life and that of others, man needs to know not only those things which can be naturally known, but also things surpassing natural knowledge, because the life of man is directed to a supernatural end, just as it is necessary for us to know the truths of faith in order to direct our own lives. 
Wherefore the first man was endowed with such a knowledge of these supernatural truths as was necessary for the direction of human life in that state. But those things which cannot be known by merely human effort, and which are not necessary for the direction of human life, were not known by the first man, such as the thoughts of men, future contingent events, and some individual facts, as for instance the number of pebbles in a stream, and the like. Reply Objection 1. The first man had knowledge of all things by divinely infused species, yet his knowledge was not different from ours, as the eyes which Christ gave to the man born blind were not different from those given by nature. Reply Objection 2. To Adam, as being the first man, was due a degree of perfection which was not due to other men, as is clear from what is above explained. Reply Objection 3. Adam would have advanced in natural knowledge, not in the number of things known, but in the manner of knowing, because what he knew speculatively he would subsequently have known by experience. But as regards supernatural knowledge, he would also have advanced as regards the number of things known by further revelation, as the angels advance by further enlightenment. Moreover, there is no comparison between advance in knowledge and advance in merit, since one man cannot be a principle of merit to another, although he can be to another a principle of knowledge. Fourth Article Part 1, Question 94, Article 4 Whether man in his first state could be deceived. Objection 1 It would seem that man in his primitive state could have been deceived, for the Apostle says, 1 Timothy 2.14, that, quote, the woman being seduced was in the transgression, end quote. Objection 2 Further, the Master says, Book of Sentences 2, Distinction 21, that, quote, The woman was not frightened at the serpent speaking, because she thought that he had received the faculty of speech from God, end quote. But this was untrue. Therefore, before sin, the woman was deceived. Objection 3. Further, it is natural that the farther off anything is from us, the smaller it seems to be. Now the nature of the eyes is not changed by sin. Therefore this would have been the case in the state of innocence. Wherefore man would have been deceived in the size of what he saw, just as he is deceived now. Objection 4. Further, Augustine says, on the literal meaning of Genesis 12.2, that in sleep the soul adheres to the images of things as if they were the things themselves, but in the state of innocence man would have eaten and consequently have slept and dreamed. Therefore he would have been deceived adhering to images as to realities. Objection 5. Further, the first man would have been ignorant of other men's thoughts and of future contingent events as stated above, Article 3. So if anyone had told him what was false about these things, he would have been deceived. 
On the contrary, Augustine says, on free will, 3.18, quote, To regard what is true as false is not natural to man as created, but is a punishment of man condemned. End quote. I answer that, in the opinion of some, deception may mean two things, namely, any slight surmise in which one adheres to what is false, as though it were true, but without the assent of belief, or it may mean a firm belief. Thus, before sin, Adam could not be deceived in either of these ways, as regards those things to which his knowledge extended, but as regards things to which his knowledge did not extend, he might have been deceived, if we take deception in the wide sense of the term for any surmise without assent of belief. This opinion was held with the idea that it is not derogatory to man to entertain a false opinion in such matters, and that provided he does not assent rashly, he is not to be blamed. Such an opinion, however, is not fitting as regards the integrity of the primitive state of life, because, as Augustine says, the City of God, 14.10, in that state of life, quote, sin was avoided without struggle, and while it remained so, no evil could exist, end quote. Now, it is clear that as truth is the good of the intellect, so falsehood is its evil, as the philosopher says, Ethics 6.2, so that as long as the state of innocence continued, it was impossible for the human intellect to assent to falsehood as if it were truth, for as some perfections, such as clarity, were lacking in the bodily members of the first man, though no evil could be therein, so there could be in his intellect the absence of some knowledge, but no false opinion. This is clear also from the very rectitude of the primitive state, by virtue of which, while the soul remained subject to God, the lower faculties in man were subject to the higher, and were no impediment to their action. And from what has preceded, question 85, article 6, it is clear that as regards its proper object, the intellect is ever true, and hence it is never deceived of itself, but whatever deception occurs must be ascribed to some lower faculty, such as the imagination or the like. Hence we see that when the natural power of judgment is free, we are not deceived by such images, but only when it is not free, as is the case in sleep. Therefore it is clear that the rectitude of the primitive state was incompatible with deception of the intellect. Reply Objection 1 Though the woman was deceived before she sinned indeed, still it was not till she had already sinned by interior pride. For Augustine says, on the literal meaning of Genesis 11.30, that, quote, the woman could not have believed the words of the serpent had she not already acquiesced in the love of her own power and in a presumption of self-conceit, end quote. Reply Objection 2 The woman thought that the serpent had received this faculty not as acting in accordance with nature, but by virtue of some supernatural operation. We need not, however, follow the master of the sentences in this point. Reply Objection 3 
were anything presented to the imagination or sense of the first man not in accordance with the nature of things he would not have been deceived for his reason would have enabled him to judge the truth reply objection four a man is not accountable for what occurs during sleep as he has not then the use of his reason wherein consists man's proper action reply objection five if any one has said something untrue as regards future contingencies or as regards secret thoughts man in the primitive state would not have believed it was so but he might have believed that such a thing was possible which would not have been to entertain a false opinion it might also be said that he would have been divinely guided from above so as not to be deceived in a matter to which his knowledge did not extend if any object as some do that he was not guided when tempted though he was then most in need of guidance we reply that man had already sinned in his heart and that he failed to have recourse to the divine aid End of question 94Question 95 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, On Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, On Man, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 95. Of things pertaining to the first man's will, namely, grace and righteousness. In four articles. We next consider what belongs to the will of the first man, concerning which there are two points of treatment. One, the grace and righteousness of the first man. Two, the use of righteousness as regards his dominion over other things. Under the first head, there are four points of inquiry. 1. Whether the first man was created in grace. 2. Whether in the state of innocence he had passions of the soul. 3. Whether he had all virtues. 4. Whether what he did would have been as meritorious as now. First Article Part 1 Question 95. Article 1. Whether the first man was created in grace. Objection 1. It would seem that the first man was not created in grace. For the Apostle, distinguishing between Adam and Christ, says, 1 Corinthians 15.45, The first Adam was made into a living soul, the last Adam into a quickening spirit. End quote. But the spirit is quickened by grace, therefore Christ alone was made in grace. Objection 2. Further, Augustine says, Questions on the Old and New Testaments, question 123, that quote, Adam did not possess the Holy Ghost. End quote but whoever possesses grace has the Holy Ghost. 
Therefore Adam was not created in grace. Objection 3. Further, Augustine says, On Admonition and Grace, 10, that, quote, God so ordered the life of the angels and men as to show first what they could do by free will, then what they could do by His grace and by the discernment of righteousness. End quote. God thus first created men and angels in the state of natural free will only, and afterwards bestowed grace on them. Objection 4. Further, the Master says, Book of Sentences 2, Distinction 24, quote, When man was created, he was given sufficient help to stand, but not sufficient to advance. End quote. But whoever has grace can advance by merit. Therefore the first man was not created in grace. Objection 5. Further, the reception of grace requires the consent of the recipient, since thereby a kind of spiritual marriage takes place between God and the soul. But consent presupposes existence. Therefore, man did not receive grace in the first moment of his creation. Objection 6. Further, nature is more distant from grace than grace is from glory, which is but grace consummated. But in man grace precedes glory. Therefore much more did nature precede grace. On the contrary, man and angel are both ordained to grace. But the angels were created in grace, for Augustine says, The City of God, 12.9, God at the same time fashioned their nature and endowed them with grace. End quote. Therefore man also was created in grace. I answer that. Some say that man was not created in grace, but that it was bestowed on him subsequently before sin. And many authorities of the saints declare that man possessed grace in the state of innocence. But the very rectitude of the primitive state, wherewith man was endowed by God, seems to require that, as others say, he was created in grace, according to Ecclesiastes 7.30, quote, God made man right, end quote. For this rectitude consisted in his reason being subject to God, the lower powers to reason, and the body to the soul, and the first subjection was the cause of both the second and the third, since while reason was subject to God, the lower powers remained subject to reason, as Augustine says. Now it is clear that such a subjection of the body to the soul, and of the lower powers to reason, was not from nature. Otherwise, it would have remained after sin, since even in the demons the natural gifts remained after sin, as Dionysius declared, Divine Names 4. Hence it is clear that also the primitive subjection by virtue of which reason was subject to God was not a merely natural gift, but a supernatural endowment of grace. For it is not possible that the effect should be of greater efficiency than the cause. Hence, 
Augustine says, The City of God, 1313, that, quote, as soon as they disobeyed the divine command and forfeited divine grace, they were ashamed of their nakedness, for they felt the impulse of disobedience in the flesh as though it were a punishment corresponding to their own disobedience. End quote. Hence, if the loss of grace dissolved the obedience of the flesh to the soul, we may gather that the inferior powers were subjected to the soul through grace existing therein. Reply Objection 1 The Apostle in these words means to show that there is a spiritual body, if there is an animal body, inasmuch as the spiritual life of the body began in Christ, who is, quote, the firstborn of the dead, end quote, as the body's animal life began in Adam. From the Apostle's words, therefore, we cannot gather that Adam had no spiritual life in his soul, but that he had not spiritual life as regards the body. Reply Objection 2 As Augustine says in the same passage, it is not disputed that Adam, like other just souls, was in some degree gifted with the Holy Ghost, but, quote, he did not possess the Holy Ghost as the faithful possess him now, end quote, who are admitted to eternal happiness directly after death. Reply Objection 3. This passage from Augustine does not assert that angels or men were created with natural free will before they possessed grace but that God shows first what their free will could do before being confirmed in grace, and what they acquired afterwards by being so confirmed. Reply Objection 4 The Master here speaks according to the opinion of those who held that man was not created in grace, but only in a state of nature. We may also say that, though man was created in grace, Yet it was not by virtue of the nature wherein he was created that he could advance by merit, but by virtue of the grace which was added. Reply Objection 5 As the motion of the will is not continuous, there is nothing against the first man having consented to grace even in the first moment of his existence. Reply Objection 6 we merit glory by an act of grace, but we do not merit grace by an act of nature. Hence the comparison fails. Second Article Part 1 Question 95 Article 2 Whether passions existed in the soul of the first man? Objection 1 It would seem that the first man's soul had no passions. For by the passions of the soul, quote, the flesh lusteth against the spirit. Galatians 5.7 But this did not happen in the state of innocence. Therefore, in the state of innocence, there were no passions of the soul. Objection 2 Further, Adam's soul was nobler than his body. But his body was impassable. Therefore, no passions were in his soul. Objection 3. Further, the passions of the soul are restrained by the moral virtues, but in Adam the moral virtues were perfect. 
therefore the passions were entirely excluded from him. On the contrary, Augustine says, The City of God, 14.10, that, quote, In our first parents there was undisturbed love of God, end quote, and other passions of the soul. I answer that, the passions of the soul are in the sensual appetite, the object of which is good and evil. Wherefore, some passions of the soul are directed to what is good, as love and joy, others to what is evil, as fear and sorrow. And since in the primitive state evil was neither present nor imminent, nor was any good wanting which a good will could desire to have then, as Augustine says, the city of God, 14.10. Therefore Adam had no passion with evil as its object, such as fear, sorrow, and the like. Neither had he passions in respect of good not possessed, but to be possessed then, as burning concupiscence. But those passions which regard present good as joy and love, or which regard future good to be had at the proper time, as desire and hope that casteth not down, existed in the state of innocence, otherwise, however, than as they exist in ourselves. For our sensual appetite, wherein the passions reside, is not entirely subject to reason. Hence, at times our passions forestall and hinder reason's judgment. At other times they follow reason's judgment, accordingly as the sensual appetite obeys reason to some extent. But in the state of innocence, the inferior appetite was wholly subject to reason, so that in that state the passions of the soul existed only as consequent upon the judgment of reason. Reply Objection 1 The flesh lusts against the spirit by the rebellion of the passions against reason, which could not occur in the state of innocence. Reply Objection 2 the human body was impassable in the state of innocence, as regards the passions which alter the disposition of nature, as will be explained later on. Question 97, Article 2. Likewise, the soul was impassable as regards the passions which impede the free use of reason. Reply Objection 3. Perfection of moral virtue does not wholly take away the passions, but regulates them. For the temperate man desires as he ought to desire, and what he ought to desire, as stated in Ethics 3.11. Third Article, Part 1, Question 95, Article 3. Whether Adam had all the virtues? Objection 1. It would seem that Adam had not all the virtues, for some virtues are directed to curb passions. Thus immoderate concupiscence is restrained by temperance, and immoderate fear by fortitude. But in the state of innocence, no immoderation existed in the passions. Therefore neither did these virtues then exist. Objection 2. Further, some virtues are concerned with the passions which have evil as their object, as meekness with anger, fortitude with fear. But these passions did not exist in the state of innocence, as stated above, Article 2. Therefore neither did those virtues exist then. 
Objection 3. Further, penance is a virtue that regards sin committed. Mercy, too, is a virtue concerned with unhappiness. But in the state of innocence, neither sin nor unhappiness existed. Therefore, neither did those virtues exist. Objection 4. Further, perseverance is a virtue, but Adam possessed it not, as proved by his subsequent sin. Therefore, he possessed not every virtue. Objection 5. Further, faith is a virtue, but it did not exist in the state of innocence, for it implies an obscurity of knowledge which seems to be incompatible with the perfection of the primitive state. On the contrary, Augustine says in a homily, Sermon Against the Jews, quote, The prince of sin overcame Adam, who was made from the slime of the earth to the image of God, adorned with modesty, restrained by temperance, refulgent with brightness. End quote. I answer that, in the state of innocence, man in a certain sense possessed all the virtues, and this can be proved from what precedes. For it was shown above, Article 1, that such was the rectitude of the primitive state, that reason was subject to God, and the lower powers to reason. Now the virtues are nothing but those perfections whereby reason is directed to God, and the inferior powers regulated according to the dictate of reason, as will be explained in the treatise on the virtues, Summa Theologica, first part of the second part, question 63, article 2. Wherefore, the rectitude of the primitive state required that man should, in a sense, possess every virtue. It must, however, be noted that some virtues of their very nature do not involve imperfection, such as charity and justice, and these virtues did exist in the primitive state absolutely, both in habit and in act. But other virtues are of such nature as to imply imperfection either in their act or on the part of the matter. If such imperfection be consistent with the perfection of the primitive state, such virtues necessarily existed in that state, as faith, which is of things not seen, and hope, which is of things not yet possessed. For the perfection of that state did not extend to the vision of the divine essence, and the possession of God with the enjoyment of final beatitude. Hence, faith and hope could exist in the primitive state, both as to habit and as to act. But any virtue which implies imperfection incompatible with the perfection of the primitive state could exist in that state as a habit, but not as to the act. For instance, penance, which is sorrow for sin committed, and mercy, which is sorrow for others' unhappiness, because sorrow, guilt, and unhappiness are incompatible with the perfection of the primitive state. Wherefore, such virtues existed as habits in the first man, but not as to their acts, for he was so disposed that he would repent if there had been a sin to repent for, and had he seen unhappiness in his neighbor, he would have done his best to remedy it. This is in accordance with what the philosopher says, quote, Shame, which regards what is ill done, may be found in a virtuous man, but only conditionally, 
as being so disposed that he would be ashamed if he did wrong. End quote. Ethics 4 9. Reply Objection 1. It is accidental to temperance and fortitude to subdue superabundant passion, in so far as they are in a subject which happens to have superabundant passions. And yet those virtues are per se competent to moderate the passions. Reply Objection 2. Passions which have evil for their object were incompatible with the perfection of the primitive state if that evil be in the one affected by the passion, such as fear and sorrow. But passions which relate to evil in another are not incompatible with the perfection of the primitive state, for in that state man could hate the demon's malice, as he could love God's goodness. Thus the virtues which relate to such passions could exist in the primitive state, in habit and in act. Virtues, however, relating to passions which regard evil in the same subject, if relating to such passions only, could not exist in the primitive state in act, but only in habit, as we have said above of penance and of mercy. But other virtues there are which have relation not to such passions only, but to others, such as temperance, which relates not only to sorrow, but also to joy, and fortitude, which relates not only to fear, but also to daring and hope. Thus the act of temperance could exist in the primitive state so far as it moderates pleasure, and in like manner fortitude as moderating daring and hope, but not as moderating sorrow and fear. Reply Objection 3 appears from what has been said above. Reply Objection 4 Perseverance may be taken in two ways, in one sense as a particular virtue, signifying a habit whereby a man makes a choice of persevering in good. In that sense, Adam possessed perseverance. In another sense, it is taken as a circumstance of virtue, signifying a certain uninterrupted continuation of virtue, in which sense Adam did not possess perseverance. Reply Objection 5 appears from what has been said above. Fourth Article Part 1, Question 95 Article 4 Whether the actions of the first man were less meritorious than ours are. Objection 1 It would seem that the actions of the first man were less meritorious than ours are, for grace is given to us through the mercy of God, who succors most those who are most in need. Now we are more in need of grace than was man in the state of innocence. Therefore grace is more copiously poured out upon us. And since grace is the source of merit, our actions are more meritorious. Objection 2. Further, struggle and difficulty are required for merit, for it is written, 2 Timothy 2, 5, quote, he is not crowned except he strive lawfully, end quote. And the philosopher says, Ethics 2, 3, quote, The object of virtue is the difficult and the good, end quote. But there is more strife and difficulty now. Therefore, there is greater efficacy for merit. Objection 3. Further, the master says, 
Book of Sentences 2, Distinction 24, that, quote, man would not have merited in resisting temptation, whereas he does merit now when he resists, end quote. Therefore, our actions are more meritorious than in the primitive state. On the contrary, if such were the case, man would be better off after sinning. I answer that, merit as regards degree may be gauged in two ways. First, in its root, which is grace and charity. Merit thus measured corresponds in degree to the essential reward, which consists in the enjoyment of God. For the greater the charity whence our actions proceed, the more perfectly shall we enjoy God. Secondly, the degree of merit is measured by the degree of the action itself. This degree is of two kinds, absolute and proportional. The widow who put two mites into the treasury performed a deed of absolutely less degree than the others who put great sums therein. But in proportionate degree, the widow gave more, as our Lord said, because she gave more in proportion to her means. In each of these cases, the degree of merit corresponds to the accidental reward, which consists in rejoicing for created good. We conclude, therefore, that in the state of innocence, man's works were more meritorious than after sin was committed, if we consider the degree of merit on the part of grace, which would have been more copious as meeting with no obstacle in human nature, and in like manner if we consider the absolute degree of the work done, because as man would have had greater virtue, he would have performed greater works. But if we consider the proportionate degree, a greater reason for merit exists after sin on account of man's weakness, because a small deed is more beyond the capacity of one who works with difficulty than a great deed is beyond one who performs it easily. Reply Objection 1 After sin, man requires grace for more things than before sin, but he does not need grace more, forasmuch as man even before sin required grace to obtain eternal life, which is the chief reason for the need of grace. But after sin, man required grace also for the remission of sin and for the support of his weakness. Reply Objection 2 Difficulty and struggle belong to the degree of merit according to the proportionate degree of the work done, as above explained. It is also a sign of the will's promptitude striving after what is difficult to itself, and the promptitude of the will is caused by the intensity of charity. Yet it may happen that a person performs an easy deed with as prompt a will as another performs an arduous deed because he is ready to do even what may be difficult to him. But the actual difficulty, by its penal character, enables the deed to satisfy for sin. Reply Objection 3 The first man would not have gained merit in resisting temptation, according to the opinion of those who say that he did not possess grace, even as now there is no merit to those who have not grace. But in this point there is a difference, inasmuch as, in the primitive state, there was no interior impulse to evil, as in our present state, 
hence man was more able then than now to resist temptation even without grace end of question ninety five Question 96 of Summa Theologica, Pas Prima, Amen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica, Pas Prima, Amen, by St. Thomas Aquinas, translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 96. Of the mastership belonging to men in the state of innocence, in four articles. We next consider the mastership which belonged to man in the state of innocence. Under this head, there are four points of inquiry. 1. Whether man in the state of innocence was master over the animals. 2. Whether he was master over all creatures. 3. Whether in the state of innocence all men were equal. 4. Whether in that state man would have been master over man. First article of question 96. Whether Adam in the state of innocence had mastership over the animals. Objection 1. It would seem that in the state of innocence, Adam had no mastership over the animals. For Augustine says, Genesis at Lim 9.14, that the animals were brought to Adam under the direction of the angels to receive their names from him. But the angels need not have intervened thus if man himself were master over the animals. Therefore, in the state of innocence, man had no mastership of the animals. Objection 2. Further, it is unfitting that animals hostile to one another should be brought under the mastership of one, but many animals are hostile to one another, as the sheep and the wolf. Therefore, all animals were not brought under the mastership of man. Objection 3. Further, Jerome says, the words quoted are not in St. Jerome's works. St. Thomas may have had in mind Bede, Hexim, as quoted in Glossa or Denaria of Genesis 126. God gave man mastership over the animals, although before sin he had no need of them, for God foresaw that after sin animals would become useful to man. Therefore, at least before sin, it was unfitting for man to make use of his mastership. Objection 4. Further, it is proper to master the command, but the command is not given readily save to a rational being. Therefore, man had no mastership over the irrational animals. On the contrary, it is written, Genesis 1.26, let him have dominion over the fishes of the sea, and the birds of the air, and the beasts of the earth, Valgut and whole earth. I answer that, as above stated, question 95, article 1, for his disobedience to God, man was punished by the disobedience of those creatures which should be subject to him. Therefore, in the state of innocence, before man had disobeyed, nothing disobeyed him that was naturally subject to him. Now, all animals are naturally subject to man. This can be proved in three ways. First, from the order observed by nature, for just as in the generation of things we perceive a certain order of procession of the perfect from the imperfect, thus matter is for the sake of form, and the imperfect form for the sake of the perfect. So also is there an order in the use of natural things. Thus the imperfect are for the use of the perfect, as the plants make use of the earth for their nourishment, and animals make use of plants, and man makes use of both plants and animals. Therefore, it is in keeping with the order of nature that man should be master over animals. Hence, the philosopher says, Politics 1.5, that hunting of wild animals is just and natural, because man thereby exercises natural right. Secondly, this is proved by the order of divine providence, which always governs inferior things by the superior. 
Wherefore, as man, being made to the image of God, is above other animals, these are rightly subject to his government. Thirdly, this is proved from a property of man and of other animals. For we see in the latter a certain participated prudence of natural instinct in regard to certain particular acts, whereas man possesses universal prudence as regards all practical matters. Now, whatever is participated is subject to what is essential and universal. Therefore, the subjection of other animals to man is proved to be natural. Reply Objection 1 A higher power can do many things that an inferior power cannot do to those which are subject to them. Now the angel is naturally higher than man. Therefore, certain things in regard to animals could be done by angels, which could not be done by men. For instance, the rapid gathering together of all the animals. Reply Objection 2 In the opinion of some, those animals which now are fierce and kill others, would in that state have been tame, not only in regard to men, but also in regard to other animals. This is quite unreasonable. For the nature of animals was not changed by men's sin, as if those whose nature now it is to devour the flesh of others would then have lived on herbs, as the lion falcon. Nor does Bede's gloss on Genesis 1.30 say that trees and herbs were given as food to all animals and birds, but to some. Thus, there would have been natural antipathy between some animals. They would not, however, on this account have been accepted from the mastership of men, as neither at present nor they for that reason accepted from the mastership of God, whose providence has ordained all this. Of this providence, men would have been the executor, as appears even now in regard to domestic animals, since fowls were given by men as food to the trained falcon. Reply Objection 3 in the state of innocence, men would not have had any bodily need of animals, neither for clothing, since then they were naked and not ashamed, there being no inordinate emotions of concupiscence, nor for food, since they fed on the trees of paradise, nor to carry him about, his body being strong enough for that purpose. But men needed animals in order to have experimental knowledge of their natures. This is signified by the fact that God led the animals to men, that he might give them names expressive of their respective natures. Reply Objection 4 All animals by their natural instinct have a certain participation of prudence and reason, which accounts for the fact that cranes follow their leader and bays obey their queen. So all animals would have obeyed men of their own accord, as in the present state some domestic animals obey him. Second article of Question 96 Whether men had mastership over all other creatures? Objection 1 it would seem that in the same instance man would not have had mastership over all other creatures, for an angel naturally has a greater power than man, but, as Augustine says, on the Trinity 3.8, corporeal matter would not have obeyed even holy angels, much less, therefore, would it have obeyed man in the state of innocence. Objection 2 Further, the only powers of the soul existing in plants are nutritive, augmentative, and generative, now this do not naturally be reason, as we can see in the case of any one man. Therefore, since it is by this reason that man is competent to have mastership, it seems that in the state of innocence man had no meaning over plans. Objection 3. Further, whosoever is a master of a thing can change it. But man could not have changed the course of the heavenly bodies, for this belongs to God alone, as Dionysus says. Therefore, man had no meaning over them. On the contrary, it is written, Genesis 1.26, that he may have dominion over every creature. I answer that, man in a certain sense contains all things, and so according as he is master of what is within himself, in the same way he can have mastership over other things. Now we may consider four things in man, 
His reason, which makes him like to the angels, his sensitive powers, whereby he's like the animals, his natural forces, which liken him to the plants, and the body itself, wherein he is like to inanimate things. Now a man reason has the position of a master and not of a subject. Wherefore, man had no mastership over the angels in the primitive state. So, when we read all creatures, we must understand the creatures which are not made to God's image. Over the sensitive powers, as the irascible and concupiscible, which obey reason in some degree, so has mastership by commanding. So, in the state of innocence, man had mastership over the animals by commanding them. But of the natural powers and the body itself, man is mastered not by commanding, but by using them. Thus, also in the state of innocence, man's mastership over plants and inanimate things consisted not in commanding or in changing them, but in making use of them without hindrance. The answer to the objections appear from the above. The third article of question 96. Whether men were equal in the state of innocence. Objection 1. It would seem that in the state of innocence all would have been equal, for Gregory says, Moral, 21, where there is no sin, there is no inequality. But in the state of innocence there was no sin, therefore all were equal. Objection 2. Further, likeness and equality are the basis of mutual love, according to Sirach, 1319. Every beast that loveth this like, so also every man him that is nearest to himself. Now, in that state, there was among men an abundance of love, which is the bond of peace. Therefore, all were equal in the state of innocence. Objection 3. Further, the cause ceases, the fact also ceases. But the cause of present inequality among men seems to arise on the part of God, from the fact that He rewards some and punishes others, and on the part of nature, from the fact that some, through a defect of nature, are born weak and deficient, others strong and perfect. Which would not have been the case in the primitive state, therefore, etc. On the contrary, it is written Romans thirteen one: the things which are of God are well ordered, valued; those that are ordained of God. But order chiefly consists in inequality. For Augustine says, "The city of God, nineteen thirteen, order disposes things equal and unequal in their proper place. Therefore, in the primitive state, which was most proper and orderly, inequality would have existed." I answer that we must needs admit that in the primitive state there would have been some inequality, at least as regards sex, because generation depends upon diversity of sex, and likewise as regards age. For some would have been born of others, nor would sexual union have been sterile. Moreover, as regards the soul, there would have been inequality as to the righteousness and knowledge. For man worked not of necessity, but of his own free will, by virtue of which man can apply himself more or less to action. Desire or knowledge; hence, some would have made a greater advance in virtue and knowledge than others. There might also have been bodily disparity, for the human body was not entirely exempt from the laws of nature, so as not to receive from exterior sources more or less advantage and help, since indeed it was dependent on food wherewith to sustain life. So we may say that, according to the climate or the movement of the stars, some would have been born more robust in body than others, and also greater and more beautiful and always better disposed. So that, however, in those who were thus surpassed, there would have been no defect or fault either in soul or body. Reply objection one. By those words, Gregory means to exclude such inequality as exists between virtue and vice, the result of which is that some are placed in subjection to others as a penalty. Reply objection two. Equality is the cause of equality in mutual love. Yet between those who are unequal, there can be a greater love than between equals. 
although there be not an equal response. For a father naturally loves his son more than a brother loves his brother, although the son does not love his father as much as he is loved by him. Reply objection three: The cause of inequality could be on the part of God, not indeed that He would punish some and reward others, but that He would exalt some above others, so that the beauty of order would the more shine forth among men. Inequality might also arise on the parts of nature, as above described, without any defect of nature. The fourth article of question ninety-six: Whether in the state of innocence man would have been master over man? Objection one: It would seem that in the state of innocence man would not have been master over man, for Augustine says, "The city of God, nineteen fifteen, God willed that man who was endowed with reason and made his image should rule over none but rational creatures, not over men but over cattle." Objection two: Further, what came into the world as a penalty for sin would not have existed in the state of innocence, but man was made subject to man as a penalty. For after sin, it was said to the woman, Genesis three sixteen, "Thou shalt be under thy husband's power." Therefore, in the state of innocence, man would not have been subject to man. Objection three. Further, subjection is opposed to liberty, but liberty is one of the chief blessings, and would not have been lacking in the state of innocence, where nothing was wanting that man's good will could desire, as Augustine says, "The city of God, fourteen ten." Therefore, man would not have been master over man in the state of innocence. On the contrary, the condition of man in the state of innocence was not more exalted than the condition of the angels. But among the angels, some rule over others, and so an order is called that of the dominations. Therefore, it was not beneath the dignity of the state of innocence that one man should be subject to another. I answer that mastership has a twofold meaning. First, as opposed to slavery. In which sense master means one to whom another is subject as a slave. In another sense, mastership is referred in a general sense to any kind of subject, and in this sense, even he who has the office of governing and directing free men can be called a master. In the state of innocence, man could have been a master for man, not in the former but in the latter sense. This distinction is founded on the reason that a slave differs from a free man in that the latter has the disposal of himself, as is stated in the beginning of the metaphysics, whereas a slave is ordered to another. So that one man is master of another as his slave when he refers to one whose master he is to his own, namely the master's use. And since every man's proper good is desirable to himself, and consequently it is a grievous matter to any one to yield another what ought to be one's own, therefore such dominion implies of necessity a pain inflicted on the subject, and consequently in the state of innocence such a mastership could not have existed between man and man. But a man is the master of a free subject by directing him either towards his proper welfare or to the common good. Such a kind of mastership would have existed in the state of innocence between man and man for two reasons: first, because man is naturally a social being, and so in the state of innocence he would have led a social life. Now, a social life cannot exist among the number of people unless under the presidency of one to look after the common good. For many, as such, seek many things, whereas one attends only to one. Wherefore, the philosopher says in the beginning of the politics that wherever many things are directed to one, we shall always find one at the head directing them. Secondly, if one man surpassed another in knowledge, this would not have been fitting unless his gifts conduced to the benefit of others. According to the first book of Peter, four ten, as every man hath received grace, ministering the same one to another. Wherefore, Augustine says, "The city of God, nineteen fourteen." Just men command not by the love of domineering, but by the service of counsel, and the city of God fifteen. 
The natural order of things requires this, and thus did God make man. From this appear the replies to the objections which are founded on the first mentioned mode of mastership. End of question 96